You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Celine Seman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're the founder of uh, Slow Factory and Study Hall. Can you give people the one-minute version of what you're up to these days? For sure. I'm actually the co-founder as of recently uh, with my partner, Colin Vernon. Slow Factory is a non-for-profit working at the intersection of human rights and environmental justice. And we have been doing so since 2012. We did have a product line and we did fundraise for other non-for-profits in the beginning of our existence. Since 2017, we've partnered with the United Nations and switched our status for a 501c3 and have been working since then uh, very heavily in the fashion industry, but also outside the fashion industry, in the beauty industry, and even in waste, (laughs) with waste management. Yeah, and talk a little bit about Study Hall, which is also, I think, something that people may have heard of. Definitely. So we run a conference series called Study Hall, and Study Hall is a free climate conference series where we bring together astronauts, scientists, designers, artists, policymakers, and we discuss this intersection that I discussed earlier, which is the relationship between human rights and environmental justice and how the two go hand in hand. And uh, we've been talking about this for close to a decade, honestly, and it's part of the open education movement, whereas all of the conferences are free And everything that we do around study hall and outside study hall is part of the open education mandate that we have, which is free education. And it's also intersectional, intergenerational and post-colonial or anti-colonial. And we look a lot at the colonial uh, aspects of the situation we're in right now and how colonialism and sustainability need to be addressed at the same time. So you've been doing this, you said 10 years now? So I've been in the space of, uh, of, let's say, for instance, human rights and access to information since 2003. And uh, from that space of transparency, access to information, digital literacy, uh, I've slowly done my own thing with Slow Factory in 2012. So I've been in it for longer than that. (laughs) And how would you compare you know, the evolution in the past 15 years of your conversations with people, do you find that people are more literate today than, than they ever have been? Or, or how is it? It's funny you say literate because we do talk often about sustainability literacy, and it's a spin-off of ecological literacy, which is a book from the 80s, I believe, or 90s, that was, you know, trying to make some of the concepts around ecology and environment accessible to all. And I've been in this space of accessible information or making information accessible to the general public. But um, I've been in that space again, like I said, since 2003. And the evolution has been where at first we were talking about the elephant in the room. And now the elephant in the room is literally everyone is looking at it. And so we've evolved from you know, mentioning it, you know, in a way that didn't, we didn't want to offend anyone to mentioning it in a way that ruffled a lot of feathers. And what, and what is the elephant? The elephant in the room is racism and, and white supremacy. It's colonialism. These are kind of intertwined. You know, colonialism is a construct that was established believing that there is a human race superior to other human races. And the rest of the human races are subject to that human race. And basically what we are looking at in terms of all the systems that we have around there, so where whether it's labor or resources or services, any of those things are connected to that hierarchy of services and hierarchy of supremacy, if you will. And I think that talking about white supremacy today in 2020, there's way more comfort around it than it was back in 2003, for instance, because back then there was a lot of fragility. Collectively, we didn't want to discuss that. 
And do you feel like that's a generational shift and or are you seeing the older generations also change their mind and adapt and learn? You know, that's a great question. Um, so for me, I know this from my own elders and from authors and researchers before me that I am very aware that I'm standing on their shoulders, as we say, you know, and this, these concepts are not new to 2003 or the early 2000s. I think that they were vilified and these constructs collectively and, and from my peers even were not uh, welcome, if you will. So I don't think it's a generational thing. I think it was a cultural thing where culturally we did not want to discuss that. And part of us not discussing any of that has led us to 2016 and the elections in the United States. I was on a panel just before the elections in 2016 and I was talking about these topics and someone in the audience was, was saying, you're so controversial, you are confrontational, you, you, you know, accusations. And that person was also questioning what is an activist? And I was like, okay, wow, we have to rebrand the word activists because it really has a bad rep. And fast forward a week after the elections. So let's pretend this panel was a week before the elections and a week after the elections when the progressive groups in the United States were completely shocked that such a person would be elected in the U.S., then I was on a panel and then everyone was an activist suddenly. Like, it was very weird. It was like everybody was an activist. I was like, what happened? Last week, you guys didn't want to be one. And now everybody is one. And we have seen a shift culturally in the acceptance of activism and the not that I am one, but like definitely I've been called one and I always debate that. But just to say that, you know, culturally, I think it was a big wake up call since 2016 and where activism protesting became sort of the progressives tool to participate in change. What you said reminds me of uh, there's a old quote by the Eames uh, about calling yourself an artist which it's something like it's like calling yourself a genius it's something that somebody else gets to to label what do you how do you define activism in 2020 you know i come from the school of thought that's very european that the eames share that you don't call yourself an artist and so on and so forth and i think that is also deeply rooted in colonialism and who calls you what and why do you need someone to call you something in order to define who you are but about activism, when I was a, a kid, when I was 13 in Lebanon, I was totally an activist. Like for me, I felt it. This was a calling for me. And I was protesting in the streets and I didn't even know I was one. But definitely that was, you know, the energy. And that later on, when I found out about activism, I was like, yep, yep, this is the only way. But then later on in life, I also surrounded by my elders and surrounded by a lot of activists true activists, like people who have dedicated their entire lives and have been in jail and have been targeted by military, I feel like, no, like we can't call lightly ourselves activists. Activists are people who have dedicated their lives at the risk of their own to change the world. And again, I'm wondering, like being conscious and demanding something better for us, why is that labeled as something? Why is not you know, the exploitation and murder of, of our planet and murder, murdering of our endangered species and the murdering of indigenous people, not called terrorism constantly. Like, why can't, why can't we talk about that in that light, you know? And so these are my questions. I don't have an answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think they're great questions because we've been talking a lot about the meaning of different words. I don't know why. I'm, I've always been fascinated with language in those types of terms, but it seems like there's also a public dialogue now about what words are. <laughs> it, this sounds like such a vague thing to say, but because it, it seems like now, whether it's with social media or the leaders that we have in the world today, that people can have very different definitions of the same word, and yet they're used interchangeably. It creates this weird... In the same way that there's been this like post-factual society, it's almost like post-dictionary society that we live in where we don't agree on what the definition of any word is. 
you know, we are in a time where we are collectively unlearning. We are collectively looking at these words, these etymologies and, and dismantling them and changing them. And we are also in a time where we have created hundreds and thousands of new words because we didn't have the words to say, for example, a router or Wi-Fi or, you know, <laughs> um, TikTok. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A word can become uh, meaningful to a lot of people instantly overnight, which is kind of amazing. Definitely. And, and, and the words are important for us to use with care, with intention. And again, when we are discussing whether someone's sexual identity or someone's ethnicity, or we are discussing a policy, it's important to know those words because then we are just perpetuating, if you want, uh, stereotypes and we're participating in a collective ignorance that basically is what led us to where we are at, you know, and that's where the importance of open education comes in. And that's where the slow factory is mandate, the slow factory's mandate, like where we work is important because we actively work on dismantling and unlearning important notions, whether it's in science, it's in human rights, it's in ecology and working on a new glossary, if you will, or uh, at least participating actively in open education, which is a peer-to-peer -peer model that's very much uh, inspired by what has built the internet. So all of the internet that we know today, everything that was coded has been built on open education and peer-to-peer -peer learning because there wasn't one institution in the world that was able to catch up to the speed at which technology evolved since the beginning of the 2000s up until now. And open education and peer-to-peer -peer knowledge were pivotal in building and, and, and maintaining and, and creating the wonderful internet that we love and that we use and that is becoming a human rights to access to and access to information. And that's the world that I come from, if you want. That's my DNA. So applying that type of uh, framework to the environment, to human rights, we translate complex issues and make them accessible to the general public because policy follows culture. How do you, what, what are your feelings now about the ability for you and, and anyone to really distribute messages? You talked about technology and access to information. It seems like information is more accessible than ever before now with the internet. And that can be a good thing and it can be a very dangerous thing. Like access to misinformation is also as widely available as access to real information. Whether it's fake news or whether it's just sort of filter bubble type of things that happen where people can sort of live in their own ecosystem and not hear kind of the other voices. What is your feeling about that? Do you feel, and also I guess interrelated with all of that is, is it possible to be a technologist and an environmentalist in in your mind? How do you think about those two things? Definitely. We, we really think of things in a in an anti-siloed perspective. And again, it's true that what you were saying is that right now we are existing within bubbles, within silos, even from an algorithm perspective, like online, what you see is definitely what you like or what you, you know, what you subscribe to. So you don't really see what's going on outside of, of your bubble. So if you're a progressive, you're going to see a ton of progressive stuff and you're going to, the world will feel pretty safe. If you are in a bubble of activism, you're going to see a lot of terrible things that are happening in the world and your world will feel pretty unsafe. And if you are a um, conservative, conservator, conservative, <laughs> conservative, yes. Sorry. Conservationist? No, no, conservative. My first <laughs> language is French, so I'm like conservateur. Anyway, if conservateur. you... Conservateur. Uh, my, my first language is French also. <laughs> oh, no, okay. okay, so it's conservative, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> if in fact, yeah, you are a conservative, you will be seeing a lot of, you know, Antifa and like a lot of anti activism, anti uh, whatever is going on in the in in the world, and you know we at Slow Factory try to go across bubbles to be able to understand what where the public is at. How do you do that? It seems so hard. It is very difficult. I'm not going to lie because the algorithms are designed for us to stay where we are, and what we see is what we like. You know, like 
everything is measured on likes and, and shares. And so basically the algorithm is designed to perform in that sense where you are satisfied as a user with the content that you are consuming. So it's, it's very problematic from a democratic perspective, you know, like we should be able to see everything because it's important to understand the context, you know. I totally agree with that. I love reading or seeing something that's shocking to me. <laughs> I I find that very thrilling, like, you know, opinions or ideas that I really disagree with sometimes because it makes me think about what my opinion actually is and try to understand why I have an opinion that I have. And if you're always in the place where everyone agrees, it's um, difficult to experience that feeling. I, I think about that, especially with art and movies. It seems like harder and harder to find art that is not trying to appeal to a lot of people. But maybe that's just because I'm inside of some sort of bubble that I can't get out of. For me, it's less about the shock factor because I feel like it's dangerous to be uh, isolated from information. To quote Desmond Tutu that says, if you want peace, you don't talk to your friends, you talk to your enemies. And he, we, here we are in our progressive bubbles hmm. saying, I can't believe this. And why are we doing this? Or can we? Can it please stop? Right. And I, re, I read this all the time and I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, like it stops with you, you know, like you have to activate yourselves and <laughs> go talk to your enemies, you know, like white people, go talk to your uncles and aunties and anyone that doesn't agree with you or even strangers that don't agree with you. Like this is the type of labor that we are asking of course it's free labor but then if if it's not done by a certain group of people it will be done by another group of people that really honestly does not deserve to be doing that job you know and so practically wait how, how do you figure out how to cut across in in the digital sphere uh with with the ideas that you're trying to share or the knowledge that you're trying to pick up so for us we follow hashtags that aren't necessarily used in the progressive spaces that are used in the conservative spaces and the right-wing spaces because we want to know what is happening in those spaces so that we can infiltrate the information that we have in these spaces. So we use these hashtags and then it creates some kind of cross the <laughs> crossing the wires. And of course, it doesn't come without confrontation because then you open up your comments to a lot of very angry folks that are really upset about the information that they're seeing because that is not what their, what their um, mm. world thinks. You're invading their space. Yes. And you have to be ready to get to the comment section. And that's where the art really happens. You know, like we have a team that's dedicated to that because I can't do this personally all day, all day long, but it's important. These conversations are important. And I'm not saying that we're changing the world by commenting and infiltrating other people's bubbles, but that is something we do just as a research mm. to be able to see where is the meme culture going. And it is a meme warfare, you know, like these memes that are being designed to circulate really, really fast and very, very wide. They are basically what we are up against because we are in a very polarized time right now where there is good and evil. There is right wing, left wing. This polarization in politics is everywhere. It's also a polarization within family members, within the way that brands are needing to position themselves and the way that they need to carry themselves or what and where do they stand? You know, if they are a progressive brand, well, you can't just post a black square. You have to do a little more. And what is it that you're doing then? So those things are part of our research uh, project. It's not something that we are um, actively able to to inform the public about. You know, we're just researching and we are finding a lot of uh, in interesting ways of of how information is being used and how information is you know, being manipulated. And it's helpful because we are in the business of information. So for us, we are looking at that as well. This might be a weird question, but can you think of a time recently where you changed your opinion on something? What are some ideas where you've changed your mind, whether big or small? Mm, that's such a good question. I think I change my mind all the time. 
And in French, we say, seuls les fous ont des idées fixes, mm -hmm. which means only crazy people, uh, fixed ideas. We are a team that debates constantly. Like, we debate really, really difficult topics. And yeah, I mean, sometimes we're super opinionated and I feel like uh, <laughs> we argue because we're like, no, this is the truth. And we argue because there is partly a truth in what we're trying to say. All that to say is that sometimes the answer is all of the above hmm. and have to be able to understand nuance and be open minded to, to look at yourself and and have an opinion that changed. And it doesn't affect your identity, <laughs> you know? I, I don't have a specific example. I feel like we are debating so many things and there's a lot of certainty where I come in and I'm like, I am sure. And this is what this guy is saying. And this is scientifically proven. And then you read the science report and you're like, oh my God, it's so nu nuanced. Like, can we really talk about this in this manner? Like, can we be that convinced, you know? I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> I think it's interesting to think about. I, I don't have an example that immediately comes to my mind either of the last time I, I changed my mind, but I, I am kind of more of a science-minded person and I'm always like looking for the facts behind something or like what is my level of confidence about any kind of opinion that I hold. Um, but it it's really hard to have that for everything. It takes so much research and work to have a well-referenced and well-researched opinion about every possible thing in the world. That being said, though, I would like to say that there are things that are undebatable and there are things that we do not debate, like human rights. We do not debate. We do not debate race. We do not debate certain things. And by we do not debate race, we do not debate the fact that there is racial injustice in the world and there is no other way around it. We have to just acknowledge that. And yes, coming from a scientific background, an artistic background as well, like I feel like, you know, my involvement with MIT Media Lab has allowed me to always keep an open mind, like nothing is 100% for sure. And in fact, we have to be able to be not 100% sure in order to act, like we have to be able to be comfortable enough to act when we're 30% sure, you know, especially on topics that are right. urgent like climate. That's a great point. Yeah. The, the yeah, the scientific method is like this is our best theory for how this works, but we're open to, you know, being wrong and what do you you're, you have to still fly a plane given the uh, laws of physics that we know today. We should probably rely on those for now. Yeah, definitely. But I also liked what you were saying about um, the all of the above. I was thinking about the the name Slow Factory and the fact that you talk a lot about urgent action and the seeming paradox between those two things, but maybe they're not paradoxical. Maybe those two things can work at the same time. How did you come up with the, the idea for the name Slow Factory and how do you think about it in relation to all of the work that you're doing that, that's happening right now and that's like urgently happening? So I came up with that name in 2007 and uh, we were brainstorming for a client. I was working in tech and uh, doing a lot of information architecture and um, this company came to us and they're like, we have a lot of files and we want to provide fast files to everybody. And we're like a fast company and fast this and fast, fast, fast. And we were brainstorming and, and actually my partner uh, right now, Colin Vernon, and I worked together before in, 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 in the company that he owned in Montreal. I was I said, what about Slow Factory? What about Slow Factory? They should slow down. And then we're like, oh, my God, let's buy Slow Factory. And then we bought it and kept it. Mm. And we buy a lot of URLs, by the way. I I, I, I just buy a lot of URLs <laughs> yeah. that I think of. Like, oh, my gosh, that's genius. You know, and like we just buy them and do nothing. And then and I think we just had like a slow motion video in the slowfactory.com, like the slowest boat that was on the river in Montreal that was just, the boat was slow, okay? Uh -huh. <laughs> and we were like, okay, we're going to put that for now. And in 2012, we were like, oh my gosh. I said to Colin, my partner at the time, and still my partner in Slow Factory, I was like, I think I need to use Slow Factory to do something because everything is so fast and we need to slow down. And I want to use Slow Factory to 
have a commentary on the fashion industry. And I was starting to work in, in slow fashion and articulating what slow fashion even is. And we launched using the name Slow Factory that I that I already had. But at the same time, it suddenly clicked. Like I was like, okay, we're doing slow fashion. And I think people understand slow food because right. they're putting that in their mouth, but they slow fashion took a lot longer. I haven't heard, I've heard slow food, but I haven't heard the term slow factory. Is it, uh, sorry, slow fashion. Is, is that a similar idea? How do you uh, compare them? A lot of people who work in the slow fashion industry, whether it's like groups like fair trade, wanting to go from food to fashion um, and so on and so forth have, uh, have already made that relationship. Like I've seen so many decks where they're like, why is the food industry ahead of the fashion industry and what can we learn from the food industry? And I really think that, you know, at the base of it, both industries rely on agriculture, whether it's for fashion or food and both industries, you know, are deeply rooted in the environment, whether it's how we harvest our food or how we harvest our cotton or our linen or our bamboo or our whatever else that we're using for our clothes at Tencel, uh, which is wood pulp and so on and so forth, you know? So right now we have a series of classes uh, launching this week on September 3rd, and it's part of the open EDU, as we call it, open education um, mandate that we have at Slow Factory. And they are a series of classes that are given for free to, uh, to the public. It's basically rooted in fashion, but fashion impacts five different sectors, at least. The first chapter of these, uh, of these classes for the first semester is from food to fashion. And we're talking to like food brands that are working in the food industry to give us their best practices because they're completely circular, they're completely organic. So how can we do that for fashion? And we're also working with a non-for-profit called Fibershed that very much creates that link between agriculture and fashion and slow fashion. The classes are uh, free and they're open to the public and they are part of our sustainability literacy program, I guess, uh, that also is part of the open education. We have five chapters and it's running from September till November and people can subscribe to any class. They don't have to take everything. Uh, they can take whichever class that uh, that interests them. It's on Zoom. Last time we ran these classes was in April for the sustainability literacy uh, module that we that we ran during quarantine, and we had around fifteen hundred students on Zoom. It's a webinar, if you want, and it's live. Or can you watch the recordings too? You can also watch the recordings, but we we really really want uh, our students to be live with us because we have a very active audience, and in fact, there are lots of questions that are happening during the class. So there's a Q&A that's happening uh, during the class itself. So the five modules are from agriculture to fashion, labor and racial justice in the fashion industry, transparency and greenwashing, designing for the real world, and manufacturing and demanufacturing. And how did you come up with this uh, syllabus? Well, this is the work that we do at Slow Factory, and we're just making it public. And the, the instructors that we work with, some of them are board members of the Slow Factory. Others are uh, longtime collaborators. We are a collective of Black, Brown, Indigenous, and minority ethnic scholars, thinkers, collaborators. And we designed this, these modules because that's the work that we do at Slow Factory, essentially. It's very much understanding and creating not creating, but more like amplifying the, the intersections between industries. As I said in the beginning, it's an anti-siloed perspective where it's not just through a tunnel that you're going to be able to understand the e ecosystem, but through a global perspective. And study hall, as you mentioned in the beginning, is very much that. Like study hall, why do we bring in astronauts and designers and scientists and engineers? Because we need a global perspective and we need everybody involved at different stages and different industries in order for us to solve collectively this international issue that we are facing. And just, I'm always thinking about if I were running my own school, what would it be about? And we don't teach a lot of these concepts in school. People have to sort of discover them or learn them through osmosis. I'm not sure what's the most interesting part of 
thinking about this, whether it's like, what are you teaching your kids, for example? I know that <laughs> you have kids and what, what, um, what are the types of ideas that you want them to learn at an early age? And what are some of the ideas that you find people, even as they enter their professional life, you wish they, they already had absorbed somehow or things that you wish you didn't have to teach? So definitely, I feel like Slow Factory is an institution, like a school, if you will. And um, we do definitely uh, work a lot on curriculum. And that's what we do, the open education part. A lot of unlearning for my kids that I'm sure you guys are hearing. And I apologize. I'm trying to text. <laughs> Calm down. But I mean, this is the quarantine life. <laughs> you know, with quarantine and the COVID-19 and the kids not going to school, I really realized that the school that they go to the public school is really teaching them the wrong things, you know, <laughs> no offense to public schools, but even private schools, whatever, like the whole educational system is it's really not up to date. It's uh, it's, it's very tragic. Actually, we were very surprised and shocked and we were very disappointed maybe because we're Canadian and we're in America and we were like, Oh my gosh, what's the difference? And we started looking at like curriculum in Canada and like the difference that exists in between the two and, and so on and so forth. But I think generally, internationally, the education system needs an upgrade. Like we need to upgrade the way that we teach our kids and to expect of them that they sit in a chair all day is inhumane. Like it's inhumane. They can't. Sitting kills. How come are we expecting our kids to sit? You know, when we have figured out that sitting kills as much as cigarettes kills. So why are we sitting, you know, why? Like, I know us, we work on the computer and like, we're doomed. <laughs> we are sitting, you know, they're standing desks and whatnot. But what about kids? Like, it's really unacceptable that we expect of them to sit for that long and to really uh, participate in this uh, uni uh, directional teaching where there's a teacher telling the kids what they should think and what they should say. And prior to that, prior to starting Slow Factory, I was very interested in the self-organized learning environments and, of course, open education, peer-to-peer. -peer. It's about designing an environment that facilitates the learning of folks at different speeds and on their, different, on their own in their different journeys. And one of the programs that we run at Slow Factory is called Landfills as Museums. And the Landfills as Museums, we take design students from uh, Parsons and FIT to the landfills and it's like a field trip and when they walk on these piles and piles of garbage and actually we are launching also the landfills as museum on September 3rd because it's part of open education we have like an immersive digital experience of uh, of what it's like to walk on a landfill and be on a landfill when you are when you're learning how to design a product your responsibility as a designer in the linear system that we exist in. And so that's a learning environment. That's us not saying anything. We're just like, come to the landfill. And honestly, the, the, the students, they cry. <laughs> and we bring, I mean, I sound very uh, sadomasochist, but we bring also, you know, uh, product designers from different companies. We we extended the program to include professionals in the industry so that they can also experience it and understand where are these products going? You know, I know you guys are a packaging company, but like, where are these, pa like the packaging issue? No, I, I, I think about this all the time. And I think it's very um, difficult to convey that idea. I haven't uh, seen like the digital version of this field trip, essentially. But I think that's a really, really powerful, not just image, but if you go there in person and see what it's like, it, it changes you. Definitely. We have a short documentary that I can send. It's also on Slow Factory. If you follow us on Instagram at The Slow Factory, if you go to IGTV, there's a documentary there of us going to the landfill. It's beautiful. We debuted it uh, during the, the study hall of January 2020, which was in partnership with the UN. And it was at the New York Times. And I feel like it was like a decade ago because it was literally <laughs> the last time seen people in person. And there was about 700 people at the New York Times Times Center. And it was so beautiful, such a magical day. And then a few weeks later, and, you know, we were in quarantine. So it's kind of surreal to to just think of Study Hall 2020 and <laughs> how it was basically the last time we convened in person. 
If there was something that you could teach everyone in the world, if you just snapped your fingers and then suddenly they, they knew it, what would it be? Oh my gosh, your questions are very good, but difficult. Uh, <laughs> I'm not giving you enough time to prepare. That's a hard question. I would say that we are the earth. We are our environment. Mm. Like yeah. there isn't a division between us and the environment, between us and the land and the earth and the trees and the air that we breathe. Every single person and every single creature that ever died and lived and died on this planet still exists in our atmosphere. We smell the same oxygen that the dinosaurs smelled. We are still part of that same ecosystem. Nothing, nothing disappears, really. If people, if people knew that very deeply inside of their soul and they, and they just completely lived that, how would the world be different? We wouldn't be designing linear systems. That's the issue. We are designing linear systems that mimic our Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, that we are born, we live, and we die. And then after that, we go to some place <laughs> called heaven that is not here. But there's no heaven for a, a plastic uh, <laughs> Ziploc bag that goes into a landfill. But okay, to paraphrase uh, Sadhguru, who is a, a guru, <laughs> Sadhguru, um, that I had the honor to interview one day, he said to me, do you have any proof that you are not already in heaven? Do you have any proof that it, this is not heaven already and we are making a mess out of it? And it's true. Like we are on this planet and this planet is heaven. Like this is honestly, like you've all had moments of awe in your life looking at nature, no? Yeah. Seeing the stars when you go in, 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 in the countryside or, you know, watching the the very polluted, beautiful, colorful sunsets and, uh, <laughs> you know, being on the ocean and being in a forest. And we feel a sense of like, it's almost spiritual and not to go too deep into spirituality, although it is something we always mention at Slow Factory because the disconnection between science and spirituality is the issue. Uh, that we are facing today, unfortunately, not everything is as sterilized and in a lab, if you will. Indigenous knowledge and traditional wisdom talks a lot about the relationship between science and spirituality. And I think that when we do understand that we are here and there's nowhere else to go. And I know Elon Musk is very convinced about Mars, but it's not going to be any easier <laughs> creating a colony on Mars where there's no oxygen and there's no water. And here we have it all. And we just have to take care of it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, how, how do you reconcile living in the 21st century where we have so many amenities that are accessible to us and... and Many of them are, are very wasteful. It's amazing that we have um, what we have today compared to, to people who came before us. How do you reconcile that feeling of like, um, in a lot of ways, our lives are so much easier than they have been for humans <laughs> thousands of years, um, while at the same time kind of trying to figure out what do we need to undo about this system? I think we need to undo the linear systems that we've created that are designed to to go to waste. Like we have to unlearn the notion of waste because waste is not, it's not waste. It's, it's a resource as well. Like there's no such thing called waste. Maybe if we mimicked our systems and we, and we map them to the way that uh, the environment functions, if we were able to understand that the wisdom that already exists in our environment then we would be able to create systems that live in harmony within that environment. And we try like on an individual level personally, and I know a lot of people do in, you know, recycling or composting and reducing their, their consumption and reducing the, uh, the disposable products that they purchase. But it's impossible to resolve it from an individual perspective only. It has to be something that we look at from a collective perspective and also the industry it has to be held accountable the the product industry in general where fashion lives in has to be held accountable 
like if you are creating something in the world, you should be able to take care of it. Like either you co collect it back or you demanufacture it. <laughs> You've mentioned technology quite a few times and what it's enabled for you or for us. Where do you see it helping versus where it hurts? Or are you optimistic about technology? Do you think technology has more solutions for us in that respect? A technology is also needing to be held accountable, to be honest, because the precious metals that exist in our phones that we use and that we are addicted to are not designed for disassembly. They're designed to be thrown away and then for a new phone to exist. They're not designed for us to be able to like to disassemble them and to reuse them, to upcycle them. And so it is a big e-waste, as we say, and the chargers that are constantly changing with every upgrade and all of that e-waste that is created. Furthermore, from technology comes the servers that hold all of our photos and all of our memories and all of our emails that we never read and all the junk email and all of that pollutes dramatically. Like, there, uh, there was an article about how our junk mail basically creates pollution because we there needs to be a server holding space for all that that digital waste. So, no, technology is not like uh, our our main savior here. And we, of course, we need access to information, and the internet is a very big part of our reality. And you know, I can't imagine a world without the internet. I don't know what it would be because I'm such a web native person, like I am online all the time. <laughs> but again, it comes with issues because to be online means there are servers and satellites. I don't know if you've ever seen an image of space recently with all the garbage and the debris that is uh, orbiting around the earth. Yeah. You know? All the satellites and the garbage and the debris and all the things they, they sent in space to test. And it's disgusting. It's like a huge... Uh, Landfill, <laughs> but it's the space field. I don't know how to say. Um, yeah. Well, that's the question that I'm trying to figure out. Like, is it possible to appreciate technology and appreciate what it allows us to do from a communication standpoint and a educational standpoint? But how do we find a way to make that work in a environmentally conscious manner? There are many ways. Uh, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson wrote a book recently about the many solutions that exist already uh, regarding renewable energies and investing in renewable energies and, you know, looking at green tech and uh, all these things that already exist that are being piloted. And it's just a matter of actively going towards these solutions and investing in these solutions and and being aware that we do need to invest in these solutions ASAP because otherwise we are, you know, doing business as usual. And that's very harmful for our planet. As you know, we have, uh, according to the UN, close to nine years left before uh, drastic changes in our environment where the earth might be unhabitable, like parts of the earth will be unhabitable. Is there anything that makes you optimistic? You know, for me, pessimism is a form of privilege and I really walk away from it. Like I cannot, I can't be pessimistic when I know that there are hundreds and thousands of people that are working actively every day to make solutions a reality, to invest in solutions, to dedicate their lives to change. Being pessimistic, 80% uh, of your time is a waste of time and energy and oxygen and you can't do that. That's just not okay. And how to be optimistic, then you ask, uh, how can I be optimistic? Well, you have to be a little bit uh, crazy to believe that there is a way out of this. If we made a way into this, there is for sure a way out of this, you know. And uh, I think we have to stop doing things as makes us comfortable. We have to very actively, I said the word actively many times, but we have to be motivated and trying to find ways that are completely different than what we used to do. And to look for uh, this space that makes us feel uncomfortable, look for discomfort, because that's where the truth exists. Like, you know, these um, Instagram posts that say, the life that you want is outside of your comfort zone. <laughs> it's true. Like you have to get out of your comfort in order for you to be able to participate in positive change. What have the last um, six months of this pandemic 
how have they affected you kind of um, in terms of your ideas and where you think we should take the future? You know, for us, in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a lot of businesses that we cared about fold and close because they were not designed for for that kind of slow market. But other businesses were flourishing because they were designed for a slow market. They were designed for a slow fashion. They were already like understanding that at some point we're going to have to slow down. You know, it's it can't go on like this. Um, and for us at Slow Factory, it was a moment of growth, I would say. Of course, very slow growth because <laughs> that's how it is for us. But it was a moment of also feeling like, okay, everything we've been working uh, towards is it's important. Like it's it was sort of like uh, people started to understand what we were doing. I, I got a lot of texts from from peers and and people that we had reached out to for working together that were like, okay, I understand what you're doing. Like, can we talk? Can we work together? Whereas before people were seeing us as this idealist entity that there is no relationship between human rights and the environment. Or, and if there is, there it's too complicated. And, you know, but now with, with, with the pandemic, with how this pandemic came to be, why is there COVID-19, the exploitation of endangered species, our dependence on 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 oil and everything fast <laughs> everything got you know paused for a long minute for 9 months plus counting and that's when i think culturally it allowed us to validate everything that we were doing you know it it was a moment for us that was validating like we were like okay we're not crazy like what we are doing is important and we're super grassroots we're a small team we're like 10 people five core and five collaborators. And, and you know, that's basically like a moment for us where we realized like, okay, we have to keep going, you know, like this is it. You have to, we have to keep going and find a way to, to maintain and create change and maintain this culture where it's at and to continue pushing for what we see is possible. It, well, it does seem like everything that you've been focusing on has never been more at the forefront and in the headlines than they are right now, that the intersection of everything that you're um, thinking about. It was a validating time for us. And again, all of our research and everything that we've been able to work on during the quarantine and to expand and to expand our programs and uh, expand our reach of help too, because of course, you know, I don't know if you know, but like in August 8th, uh, August 4th, sorry, there was an explosion in Beirut. I was going to ask you about that. That was my next question. <laughs> yes. I come and from, you're from there. Yes. Yes, exactly. And we were already working with Beirut and Lebanese uh, folks here and there and looking at ways that we can create this, uh, this bridge of, of solidarity, if you want, uh, because we are uh, interested in, um, in an internal, interna internationalization <laughs> of, uh, of the culture. And in a way where it's not super U.S. centric all the time, what is happening around the world that can inform how we are conducting ourselves and business and culture and so on. Just just for the, the sake of it, can you describe what you mean there? Definitely. Uh, internationalism, according to Wikipedia, is a political principle that advocates greater political or economic cooperation among nations and people. And for us, it's not globalization because globalization is the exploitation of people internationally and resources, whereas internationalism is essentially. Um, and again, if you guys are curious, you can look at uh, Progressive International. They have a conference coming up on September 18. I'm part of the council. It's a, a council that's an amazing council with like Noam Chomsky and Arundhati Roy and uh, Naomi Klein and a lot of different people from all over the world and they apply internationalism quite effectively and there's a conference that's open to the public and registrations are open now and it's called Progressive International. If you look it up, you'll find them and if you are interested in these concepts, definitely tune in because it's super interesting. Well, we'll put um, all those links in the in the show notes so that people can check them out. As we wrap up here, um, is there any big idea that <laughs> we haven't touched on that you want to share with people? Is there something that um, we've forgotten to uh, to talk about? There's so much, but something that you've been 
feeling passionately recently? Well, everything. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that way. Yes. Um, definitely Beirut is in my heart and has always been. And since this explosion, it's been a, a roller coaster for us at Slow Factory because not only are we running our current programs, we are also running a super fund for Beirut, which is a five-year fundraiser program where we are working with grassroots organizations and individuals in Lebanon that are working at the intersection of human rights and environmental justice. And we are helping fundraise for many different initiatives there. So if you are caring about Lebanon or you care about um, that part of the world, we really encourage you to donate and join forces with us. And we've worked with brands and many uh, different organizations around uh, the Superfund. So it's a wonderful way to show that you care and to create what we call um, regenerative economy, where we put back money where action and impact exists. And uh, that's where Slow Factory exists. Yeah, I mean, I would encourage everyone interested to, to join us in our efforts. And it's an open movement for everyone. And we hope that we will work together. I, I would love um, for people to go take some of your courses and even just if they follow you on Instagram, there's so much great knowledge that you're sharing there all the time, even if it's sort of in a more passive learning type of way. I've been thinking a, a lot about the idea uh, of open learning and open sourcing, everything that has to do with topics around sustainability, environmentalism, all of these ideas. I think as soon as they become, as soon as people think of them as proprietary or some sort of competitive advantage, it becomes a very dangerous thing. Um, and so I really love what you're doing. And I think it's great that um, this knowledge is being being shared openly. Thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope that uh, this inspires the public that you share this with. And that it inspires us to collaborate together and to join forces because we really need everybody uh, in order to see the changes that we wish to see. And it's a collective effort. It's not something we can do alone. So I hope it inspires action. Thank you, Celine. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks and see you next time.